Welcome to Open Door Talks, a podcast series for independent musicians on how to navigate the music industry. I'm your host, Lex Luca, a music producer and DJ from London. I'll be talking to your favorite music makers about their journeys to success. Expect to hear a whole host of tips and tricks from seasoned professionals to help you move forward with your music. Follow Open Door Talks on your favorite podcast platform and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. This is Open Door Talks. Welcome along to the first ever episode. My name is Lex Luca, and today we are joined by one half of Basement Jacks, Felix Buxton. Basement Jacks are one of the most highly regarded electronic music duos coming out of the UK. They formed back in 1994 and went on to sell millions and millions of records. They have won two Brit Awards, they've won a Grammy, they've toured the world countless times with a wicked live show, and they've even headlined Glastonbury twice. So this is a really cool conversation. We focus a lot on the earlier years, forming of Basement Jacks, and Felix shares lots of tips and tricks and creative strategies for you guys, independent musicians, to move forward with your music. So let's get into it. Felix, it's really good to see you. How are you? I'm very good. Uh, a little bit jet lagged, but um, all good. Just being on a, an Australian New Zealand tour that was delayed three years because of the pandemic. So I'm just done that. There was myself and Simon. We were DJing. We were there actually four years ago doing an orchestral show at the Sydney Opera House, and that was all great. But this time it was back down to the roots uh, with the DJ tour and. Big success, all good, but uh, first time for me traveling with a baby, and that definitely becomes a lot harder, uh, DJing and being a dad at the same time. So, uh, but successful mission with a bit of jet lag and a cold. Mm, dad life and tour life, two different lives intertwining. <laughs> Glad it went well. And thank you so much for joining us here on the Open Door Talks podcast today. I'm really, really excited to get into this conversation. So let's jump right in. Please take us right back to the beginning. What were your musical influences and experiences growing up? I was born in a, a vicarage in the Midlands in a mining town near Leicester. So I was very lucky actually as a as a child because I lived a very free life, kind of running around in the, the fields and kind of um, your dad being a vicar, you don't have much money. I didn't have the electronic games, which was a new thing in the 70s when I was growing up to being 10. I was around then in the 80s. I sang in the church choir and rang the bells, did the things I had to do uh, at home. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was really into music. And as I used to chop logs, because we had an open fire, we had no central heating. And uh, I used to kind of look round at the log pile. And I thought it'd be great if there was a bass player there and a different musician there, which is an odd memory to have. But um that was probably the idea of making music with with different people and um, presenting that. That kind of was appealing. And um, maybe when I was three, my dad said him and my mum saw me whistling Ina Klein and that music by Mozart. And they said, "Is oh, he's got a mind like a tape recorder, which I don't think is strictly true because my memory is pretty appalling. But maybe it's better for melody. I think melody has always kind of appealed to me. As a teenager, I got really into dance music 
and probably it was a lot harder to get music then. So I'm talking like the the mid eighties. I I was eighteen in nineteen eighty eight, which was a time of this wave of um, new music. Like eighty six, eighty seven. I guess that's the first time I went out dancing, and that was well, it was a total love and passion. And I really loved dancing, uh, jazz dance, uh, rave, hip hop. Uh, funk, rare groove, that all these musics were kind of played together, particularly in somewhere like Leicester. It was all very open. If you were into clubbing, it meant that you weren't into fighting and gang culture, which was another thing at the time. If I remember when I was 17, going to a club called the Bear Cage in Leicester um, to go to an acid night and not knowing what acid music was. And I I had some homemade gene flares that I'd, um, put curtains on it. I'd sewn them together and put curtains as inserts as kind of like hippie daisy age sort of vibe. And I was walking through Leicester town centre and there were about 40 kids. Um, they used to be called the baby squad that would walk around with flick knives back in the days, which is like, it's, it's, it's like, it's from a movie really. But um, yeah, and and they, they'd go wanker, you know, it's kind of, so if you're into club culture at the time, it, it felt like this really kind of special, interesting place where people are a bit alternative. I suppose there was a mixture of styles. It came from the 70s, the, the 50s, very much black American uh, music from America, Brazilian, Latin music, kind of whatever. Uh, people were open to whatever music they could find, really. And there was no kind of law to to what styles you played. It was just if, if it moved you. And um, I mean, the first time I heard uh, Can You Party, which was like one of the first big house records by Todd Terry. And that was in the jazz dance floor in um, uh, probably about 86, 87 in Leicester. So then the jazz, the jazz dancing, there was like four guys in the room. So it was pretty small and basically I walked into the room, I saw one of them uh, skid across the floor, jump onto the wall, flip over and land in the splits. And um, Can You Party by Todd Terry was playing. And uh, so to me, that was jazz dance. So uh, the idea of house, jazz, all these things, probably they're all, for me at that time, very much part of the same thing. Wow, I can just imagine the scenes of the baby squad with their flick knives there so how did you get into DJing and what music were you playing back then I went to uni in 88 um I went in Exeter in Devon because basically I saw that there was more sunshine in the south of England and um I thought that seemed a good idea the first person I met at Exeter uni was Tom York from Radiohead and we were both there thinking oh dear this not sure about this place it seems to be full of kind of Sloan Rangers, they were called at the time, um, kind of posh people with with very kind of um, elevated backgrounds and probably not the biggest worldview. Yeah, and, and we were there in Exeter and um, we were both like, oh, we should be in Manchester. That's kind of where it's all happening. And um, anyway, we both stayed. Um, probably a year or so later was the first time I DJed in a club. I didn't have any music at all, but people knew I was really into dancing and music. So I borrowed one vinyl uh, and yeah, I played one vinyl and then one tape cassette. 
and then one vinyl and and did it like that. I borrowed off all my friends, like the the good tracks. And um that was my first gig and and the party was called No More Bullshit and the and and the guy DJing before was Tom York. He was playing the indie music and I was playing the the dance music. So that was kind of my my kind of journey into being a DJ and and uh I mean it wasn't something I'd really planned. It's just people knew I was really into the music. And I was very excited at the time about Acid House and the idea that there was this new generation of kind of there were really the the peace and love movement of the sixties. I thought it's come again and this time it's gonna work and and we're gonna change society. There was there was films like Do the Right Thing by Public Enemy coming out, which are about uh, political activation and about and, and fight the power and, and oppressive regimes and about equality. And the, a lot of the music coming out of Chicago, that was all about unity. It was about uh, black people who were struggling, gay people who were struggling and um, Latin community as well. And um, that really appealed to me. I don't know, maybe there's something in, in common with a, a mining town in the Midlands. <laughs> I don't know, but it, it spoke to me. And um, yeah, and the message in all that music and the scene, it was so vibrant and alive. There was pop art, Keith Haring and Basquiat. There was this kind of visual canvas. And um, yeah, with hip hop bands like Della Soul, who had this real positivity, which was all the same message in the the hip hop and house music, and often tracks you'd have a hip hop mix and a house mix, and it would often sound very similar. So it was very hard at that time to tell the difference. First DJ set with Tom York warming up for you is quite a place to start from, I guess, because it was so fresh or the music was so new. It must have been super exciting. Do you remember specific tracks and labels that really perked your ears up into dance music? Everything was brand new. Um, I suppose when I was at school, I suppose this would be 86, 87 or something like that. I remembered at lunchtime, someone had a tape cassette player and um, uh, and we were listening to House Nation, which is like one of the early house tracks that goes house, 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 house nation, house, 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 house nation. And we were just kind of like shaking our heads going, what is this? It's like a computer's gone wrong. It's like, and it, it was like the most different music we'd heard. It's so odd and repetitive and alive and, I don't know, radical. And I suppose at the time there was quite a lot of of, of tracks used to come out like that, And um, and but that was normal. I, um, some of my earliest tracks that I bought for DJing were on New Groove Records and they'd have a bit of opera, a bit of rock. Um, they'd have one track that now we'd call breakbeat. The other track has an African rhythm. So probably just thinking with Basement Jacks, that the kind of a lot of the landscape it was created by no by um, uh, labels like New Groove and Nervous. And well, when I got um, at eighteen and I started putting on parties, I started a Peace and Love Society um, with the intention of just like having parties and bringing people together and psychedelic grooves were the name of the, the evenings. And um, Frank Tope actually was, uh, he was from London and he's been involved in the music industry, but he was someone who knew what was kind of good and happening and was kind of a, a bit of a head as a tastemaker. So he came and played there and that was the first time I heard Can You Feel It by Mr. Fingers. 
which was definitely for me personally the yeah probably the beginning of a relationship with someone in music um in my mind and in and my senses i i did interview larry heard years later who was very kind of nonplussed and, and super kind of like not bothered about anything which i really like um so he wasn't he, the opposite of being hyped basically i used to listen to music like that when i was a student so this is like 89 90 and I listened to it kind of like meditation music. So I'd listened to the track like 40 times in a row. And I really like where it put my kind of headspace and the feeling. And the other similarity I've noticed kind of looking back is that I felt a little bit like that would be um, in a church service when I was growing up in the communion, that, uh, which, is, which would take place in the middle of the service. Often they'd play this this quite um, uh, reverential music that was kind of soft and and um, reflective. So for me, that's Deep House. It's the same thing, a, a place where you get this feeling. And nowadays, people are more interested in mindfulness and kind of understanding these things. But I mean, definitely aspects of Deep House music and the whole thing is kind of, in a way, prayer music or and probably being from more urban environments, it gives people like it makes it cooler, you know. But I think for a lot of the people who were creating that, like Larry Heard, it was kind of um it was the way that their spirit felt free and it was felt true. I love that comparison of deep house with meditation music. That's really cool. What was your experience of the clubbing scene back then? Yeah, well actually I suppose club music was alternative. <laughs> in a way back then so if you're into the club scene you were basically an alternative person you were like a goth but it was a new style and it was exciting because you'd see someone and and you'd tell by the fashion or something that like, oh they're into it and you know that was great so you bonded with with people and um it was like this new thing that was happening it was in the air as, as well as the psychedelic groove the other thing i started was called the natural high society which is nhs with the idea that kind of yeah it's a natural thing to be high off music and when you're dancing which is funny because it was in 88 when some people were doing loads of drugs and but i was going to the clubs with them you you didn't need drugs at all because um thinking of going to the cool cat in nottingham probably about i don't know 1989 or something all they did was fill the room with smoke and then put the strobe on full, so it was flashing the whole time. So, I mean, you, you couldn't be too faint-hearted. It was like a real assault. You couldn't see anyone at all, but that was so exhilarating, and the, the smoke tasted of banana. So you were tasting this banana smoke, and, and basically that's why people used to do the acid dancing, because your hands would appear through the smoke. But also, it wouldn't be just house music that was playing, or acid house. I mean, you'd listen to a hip-hop track. There, I mean, there was Balearic music that started to be introduced, which meant anything that was any style of music played amongst with that. I mean, when I started My Nights, The Natural High, I think a house, jazz, Latino, hip-hop were, were kind of... That was my... I set my stool out. Um yeah, probably around that time there was Soul to Soul in London. They seemed to be fusing kind of 
some of the same things and and I loved where they were coming from that whole sound and they actually came down to Exeter it was a very alive exciting time and the buzz you'd hear on you track and and basically you go to the record shop and you go it goes well there was one track called wicked stuff that um soul to soul played I never found it but all it did was go wicked stuff (laughs) yeah And they didn't have records like that before. In Leicester, basically, there was Sneakers Records, which was um, the guy that used to serve me then became DJ SS, um, a a drum and bass DJ. Yeah, he introduced me to On Vogue, the R&B stuff from... And I'd say, I want to get some of that music that just does the same thing, just like chunky, like... And at the time, you... It's very basically a dub house record. Like uh, there were people like Bad Boy Bill in the states, and um, it was just chunky. It was um, exciting, powerful house. But also at the same time, I'd buy uh, an R and B track, and which was kind of like, yeah, that's what you call it nowadays. And uh, but that was new as well. And they were using the same chords often, and but it was really slow. And then you'd have an instrumental, you'd have an acapella, and you'd try and play one acapella over another record if you could. If a DJ did that, that that was amazing. In Exeter, I used to stand outside in, in the, the docks area, which was near where the club was that I did a night. And uh, I'd have a bunch of flowers. I'd painted my, my shirt with kind of like peace and love and this sort of stuff. And they used to be Marines because there's an army base in Plymouth or Navy. So, um, yeah, some of them are really like not like it and try and, you know, often you'd be nearly getting in a fight because they're like, what are you doing? And we're like, it's all right. I love you, man. It's cool. It's all peace and love and come to the party. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of a radical idea that we were kind of, I don't know, that, probably at the clubs at the time as well, one thing that was brilliant, that it everyone seemed to talk to each other, like, hi, where are you from? You know, what? Yeah, I don't know. Just a, And it seemed to attract a real cross-section of people. The, the first night in Nottingham, uh, the dance floor down, there were two dance floors. The upstairs one, uh, Graham Park used to come from, um, which I never knew at the time. He used to come from Manchester, and uh, so that would play hip hop earlier and then it'd be house and hip hop and, and whatever else. The dance floor downstairs was playing like Indian Gothic music. So you'd go to a little courtyard and there'd be goths with full on like death makeup and you'd be chatting to them and they go, oh, well, you go and shoegaze there and we'll go to the other one. So it was kind of that wasn't a long way away as well. The The, the cultural kind of clashes. So how did you evolve from putting on the events at uni to doing parties in London? I used to make tapes for people generally because I was really into this New York sound. I'd find the records. There was a Choice FM used to have Benji Candelario doing um, um, 11 or or midnight mix. Uh, Choice FM was like an R&B station, so they didn't really play house music. But they did on the show from live from New York, it said Saturday nights and... um, and there were people like him and Paul Trouble Anderson um, that I used to go to his night at the loft. And anyway, I was into this music and I'd go to Black Market Records, 
and I'd say, oh, I found this tune and can I get this? And, and they'd say, oh, yeah, it's going to come in a month's time. But we've only ordered two copies because no one seems interested in it. And then sometimes you'd have to pay in advance for a bit of it. And it'd be like a tenner, which was a lot of money back then. And I started putting on parties and boat parties with my friend Fiona. Basically, she had to get people there. She did parties with me at college. And um, yeah, and then we'd go to to pubs and put like flyers on. And, and the first night started in Brixton because I wanted to do them in the West End. <laughs> But it just seemed unfeasible. And I, and I found this guy in Brixton who said, you can use my Mexican restaurant when we finished and uh, got a sound system in. All I wanted was a stack of speakers, um, a, one strobe, a red light, and that was it. It was kind of all about this underground sound and one room, like the underground house or whatever room, and there the room would play jazz dance. And Because for me, that was like heaven. And and it's funny, in 93, um, my mate Fiona uh, uh, won some, her dad got a washing machine and they won some tickets to New York. Uh, so which, and I was like, yeah. And, and I was like, yeah, we're going to go to New York. And I was so excited. What was difficult, a few weeks before she got a new boyfriend and she was saying, is there any way my boyfriend could come? I said, no way, I'm not giving up that ticket. So we, we went to New York, and um, so the first thing, I, I think it was like a sneaker shop, and they had this um, flyer, and it said Kenny Carpenter playing tonight. And I was like, great, Kenny Carpenter. He was uh, someone I was aware of who was a great DJ. He was like the real deal. So we went to this place on the, the night, and it was a, a Monday night, I don't know, like a 100-meter queue. But we went to the front and said, hi, we're from The Face magazine in London. And and, uh, and and they let, well, I don't know if they we paid or they let us in anyway, went to the DJ thing and they said, oh yeah, Kenny Carpenter's not here. And there was Louis Vega there. It was like a youth club and it was kind of, um, it, it wasn't like, a, like thinking of clubs nowadays. It was basically what I was doing in Brixton. And the one room was jazz dance and then the other room where Louis was playing was kind of like underground house. I was like, this is it. This is what I thought it should be. And it was so good. And, and me and Fiona, we were there with Louis and it was amazing. And it was kind of this this idea of this New York housing that I'd kind of formulated in my mind. It, it existed and it was music based on Latin and gospel. And and it was about dancing, really sweating. And and at the time, I was very much into the, yeah, you, you dance until you drop. You kind of dance all night, hardcore and so it has to be the the rhythms and everything. And definitely at the beginning of Basement Jacks, with um, every track when we finished it, I'd kind of, okay, now we're finished and go to the corner and, and then I'd close my eyes and then I'd do a dance test. <laughs> so, which I took very seriously because I was a dancer and I wanted stuff to kind of um, keep me interested and rhythmically keep moving. I mean, we should probably do that nowadays. That's what happens with time. You get a bit lazy. Wowzers, what a cool story. That would have been amazing to be there at that time. So you went on to meet Simon, who's the other half of Basement Jacks. How did you guys meet and how did you end up working together? Well, I mean, I, I think it's like a lot of things in life. You make a, a step in one direction and you, you don't overanalyze it. You, you just kind of move towards it. So I met Simon uh, I mean, I'm not sure, but maybe 92, 90, probably 93, I'd imagine. 
we had some mutual friends who were at the same school when they were teenagers. It was in uh, Clapham, uh, like Latchmere Road around there. The, there was a, a pub and some people had met and I met him there. I think we're not completely sure. <laughs> but um, anyway, someone said, oh, you know, Simon's into music. He makes music. He's got some gear. So I'd have probably said, oh, great. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't have any gear like with the DJing. And yeah, we probably chatted and thought to stay in touch. I can't remember what happened then because no one had mobiles or anything. So I, I guess you'd probably ask a friend if they had a telephone number or knew where they lived. But I don't know, it didn't really seem to think about it so much. I came into London in 91. So I'd been there for a while. I was going to clubs. That was the main reason I wanted to go to London, the clubs and the music. And he, I can't remember if at the stage whether he'd, he'd finished his study and he was doing bits of music. He was doing helicopter, him and his uh, friend, this guy, Jeff. He was doing stuff in the basement of Jeff's house. And that was when I first, well, after meeting him in a pub or something, I ended up going with another mate, Frank, who <laughs> like, and um, there were three of us. We went there. Basically, he had some equipment. So we hired him and Dylan, who who was helicopter. I mean, all, all these names at the time, they were just someone who was doing stuff. None of it was important. No one cared anyway. It was like, it wasn't like anything was famous. So me and a couple of people, we hired them for a few hours to use their equipment yeah so I suppose it was basically trying to do stuff and um I think probably I did two occasions with Simon in the studio and the second occasion I think I brought a couple of samples just because I wanted to see how the idea would sound not what we were working on on the day and one of them was Be Free um which was one of the earlier Basement Checks tracks which is actually a string sample from, um, I don't know if I should say this, but it's kind of like, it's from a, one of my other mates. I know lots of Simons. One of my other mates, Simon, had this Steve Martland string piece, which was about 29 minutes long, kind of like Philip Glass. It's quite minimal. And I used to listen to it and friends thought it was funny because I'd say those two seconds after 23 minutes, I think if you'd listen to them over and over again, that'd be really cool. <laughs> and so seeing Simon, uh, that was one thing. He looped it and then we put a flange on it. And I thought, oh, yeah, that would totally work. I loved the idea of making a symphony of, of strings that was based around this groove and and, and Simon, I didn't know him as a, a person, so we'd, we'd just meet, and he agreed uh, to do this project. I said, look, you know what we did before coming to do stuff? I'd like to do it, but just do a project that's based around this New York sort of idea. So, And the origin origins of um, Chicago House, like the tracks records, the, the just raw, pure, and uh, just to do it like that. And uh, would you be up for the project? But I won't pay anything, but we'll just do the, the stuff. Yeah, and aim to get an EP. And he was like, yeah, cool. He was very relaxed and like, yeah, sounds good. What was the process behind making that first EP? Like, How long did it take and how did you end up releasing it? Basement Jack's EP 1, I think, came out in 94. So basically, we spent a year doing it. So I'd meet Simon maybe, I don't know, every two months or something. I don't know. Every, or, yeah, we met maybe four times 
during the year to do the EP. And I'd take like loads of provisions, like fruit and, and current buns and because we needed energy to keep going. And then I'd go with all my lists of samples and like track seven, you know, two minutes, 32 beep noise. And probably around then, it was the idea to put out an EP. Um, but yeah, we didn't know how or where or whatever. But at that time, people would press music anyway. So it, it wasn't, didn't seem, the idea didn't seem a million miles away. I was working in an office at that time. So um, I'd got a job. I had to pay my rent. So for me, it was a hobby. That, and um, Simon, I can't remember if he was doing any work or not, but he was, I think he was thinking to to do music. And also he was doing the helicopter stuff, which was, they were trying to get that going. We basically had a tape cassette of an EP. And where my office was in Battersea, I looked in the yellow pages probably, which is where you get found information back in those days. And it said, uh, um, record distributors. I thought, well, uh, oh, there's one near me. So I'll go and see it. They're called soul trader. So they, they trade kind of soulful music. And, um, I went there one lunchtime and met, uh, the two guys that were running it. And Mark Jones was there. I've got this music. I was wearing a suit cause that's what I had to do for my job. I mean, I wasn't looking like the hottest thing off the block. And I said, would you just give me a couple of minutes and just listen to this? And he said, yeah, he was very like, yeah, okay. And we sat in the, his office, it was a storeroom with records everywhere. And he, he kind of played a bit of the, the first track probably, and then flipped through. And he was like, yeah, it sounds, it sounds good. It sounds cool. And I, I said, would you distribute music like that? And he said, yeah. And I said, I haven't got any money. Would you press it? <laughs> and the, the funny thing is, he said yes, but I only learned years later that he'd never put out a record before. <laughs> so, uh, And he went on to do managing for Grace Jones and he did Wall of Sound Records. But he said he, he at that point he, he hadn't done it. And actually, the reason I was there was after contacting Strictly Rhythm and Nervous Records, and then I think Ministry of Sound probably in the UK. It was probably those three people, and um, no one uh, gave any response. It was there was nothing there. I knew one friend who'd gone to get a job in East West Records, so was actually in the music biz. I said to him, "What do you think?" And he was like, "Oh no, it needs to be remixed. It's not, you know." And it's kind of like, so so basically, all the doors were shut. So I uh, went to the Soul Trader, and he was like, "Yes." So it was like, "Great." press ep1 and um yeah if it makes any money then we can use that to make an, a second record so it so it was quite simple cottage industry really it took a while coming together and the, and the name was basement jacksy for for one week maybe and then someone said jacksy means toilet in irish I, I don't know at the beginning i used to call myself underground oasis a bit which was what basement jacks was maybe going to be called i'd i'd give myself a, ne a different name each party, really. Um, my mate Frank said, Underground Oasis, there's this band called Oasis. I've got a feeling they're going to be big. So maybe it shouldn't be Underground Oasis. But my mate Joel and Lester as well, he did the, the logo, the Jack's face, and, and he'd lived for six months in New York. So he kind of had an understanding, and he, he loved Basquiat, the artist who I was really into. And... Um, 
and I was a big fan of Nervous Records in, and I thought it was so great they had a face and I thought that was really cool. So, yeah, basically it was like, yeah, make a face. And that's that became the, the Basement Jack's face at the beginning. So when you got those rejections, did you ever feel dejected or were you just kind of so gung-ho you were just kind of focused on releasing it and you were going to find a way? It wasn't gung-ho. It was just wanting to actually get the project out there. When Basement Jacks is a name that no one's heard of, it, it could be called a cup of tea. With Mason Music as a cup of tea, we want to release it, put it out there, and then, and then someone might like it and play it, and we can, I, I don't know, we can dance to it, hear it. Because it, also, a lot of the underground records at the time, it wasn't like they were going to like have a hit or be successful. The main idea was that you could play them and they sounded great and maybe you had something fresh to play in your set. The culture was very alive and and, and also a real excitement of hearing something like an early Masters of Work record or whatever and like, God, that's so cool. I really like the way they do that and do this. Oh, it'd be good if it had, you know, this other sound in there. That'd be good to play. And so it was kind of definitely a conversation between what was happening around for one, it was underground music. You didn't expect people to jump up and down and go, whoa, it's so cool. I, I, there the seems to be now more of an idea of like, oh, I have to be successful. Back then, I was working in an office. I thought it's my hobby. A lot of the a lot of the music I like, like in black market records, they only have a couple of copies. It's not even that fashionable. So it was for fun, really. What kind of feedback were you getting from your music at that stage? With EP1... When I'd gone to New York, I'd um, me and my friend had ended up staying at this guy's flat, and uh, just for an afternoon or so in Brooklyn. I th- he was running Mr. Fingers stuff years later. Brett Dancer, his name was, and he was making underground tracks. He let us know that the first EP, Tony Humphreys played the track Underground off the first EP. So that was kind of in my mind. That means, that, yeah, it's carry on because that's. For me, he was a legend at the time. And uh, and by the time we got to the, the third EP, which was Samba Magic, always I'd, I'd put a, a telephone number, put a load of information about publishing that I'd copied off, like, whichever records. It was, it was completely not right. But you just put information because it made it look like proper stuff. And so uh, I'll never forget getting home from work and, and my mate Fiona said, check the answering machine and it was uh so press play and it was like your word up this is louis vega uh just calling that samba magic was slamming at the sound factory last night and um and and so i'm there (laughs) with my suit after work like oh wow so it's really starting like people i respect and admire are playing the music it's like a proper nod of approval isn't it so what happened next? What were the steps you took to get signed to XL? So like after the first EP, we carried on uh, like kind of with Samba Magic. I take the sample along, you know, and then you do that and go, oh, this could be a dub as well. Put that idea down, record it. And then I'd listen to the stuff when I went home because I, I had an office job. And um, so I doing the washing up, I wanted like stuff to get into. Yeah, and then kind of working out what the tunes are, and that happened EP3, so that was 97, I think. So, um, yeah, so we ended up signing the track Samba Magic 
And uh, and actually, there was also a track called Bello Horizonte. The, the first place we were asked to DJ was in Italy for Claudio Coccoluto over there. And um, so we ended up hearing his track Bello Horizonte, which we thought was amazing, uh, which again sampled Aieto Moreira. And um, so then we got a copy of that and we were playing that. And... Uh, and then we said we'd love to put it out on our label because we put out three records already, so we're a real label. Uh, and, um, yeah, so we did that, and and that became the early Basement Jacks parties. That was like a main tune, uh, like a, a highlight tune. And um, we ended up signing that to Virgin, who, I mean, this is the first lesson in the music industry, uh, the first hurdle. They... Um, they took the record. They said, yeah, great. We love it. Kind of Brazilian samba vibes, whatever. And they also um, signed a copy of the record called Bellini. And then they they did a release, a very commercial copy of the record uh, before ours. And so ours got lost completely. And that became like a worldwide hit. And um, so that was a little bit disappointing because uh We'd done it for Claudio, and it was completely authentically his idea and a great thing, and we loved playing it, and people reacted well. So, um, so yeah, I mean, my dad, he'd always said, you know, the entertainment industry, don't trust anyone. And he's a vicar, so a man of God. But uh, that seems a good place to start, and when people prove themselves, then you, you kind of... So I probably had that mindset of, like, yeah, they're all sharks. They're trying to just, you know, pull bits of you... Uh, which obviously in that case they were. So that was kind of um, a bit of experience of uh, being like shunned out of the way, getting rejections. Rejection was kind of normal and like, it was disappointing when the people you know kind of enabled this to happen and, and that you gave them some trust. But there was there was that. And then we signed the track Fly Life to um, Simon's friend Scott, who ended up being at Multiply Records. So that was one track and then Samba Magic. So we had two tracks on different labels that were in the world just to get it out there more. And then through Scott putting that record out, we got to do a, a remix for MK, which was called The Need. And because at the time, if you did a remix, that was a way people might hear your music more. You kind of uh, masters of work, did it, Mood to Swing, who we were fans of. And... um yeah, so all these little things kind of end up being a step that kind of get you out there. And then we heard DJ Sneak really liked, was playing our MK The Need version, which was amazing. And and, and we didn't know what we were doing. The mix, the, the track had nothing in it. It went The Need, and it was just like a, I don't know, bog standard house track that didn't seem that inspiring. But it was like something was being released in the world and they'd probably tell people about it. That was a step. And then... Yeah, basically in 97, around then we were doing parties and then there started to be a bit of interest. Uh, Nick Worthington from XL, he started turning up at parties a long time before anyone else was interested. And then I, I think we got to the stage maybe that year or, or the next year and um, and we spoke to Giles Peterson and to, to Scott, Simon's mate, and XL. And then I think... A couple of others became interested all of a sudden. They thought the party was as happening. And, um, yeah, maybe they heard this American house thing might catch on. 
I remember we went into one meeting. I, I was very kind of hard with the people because they'd say, oh, you know, love your earliest stuff. And I'd say, which track? Tell me which track and like point out the bits you liked about it. And they go, oh, I don't know. Soon the kind of illusion would fade away. But Nick Worthington had been there quite earlier on and, and we trusted him because he wore very comfortable shoes like Clark shoes that were really square and like not hip. So he wasn't about image. He was really about listening and like uh, kind of seeing something. And he, he seemed really like a, a an honest, straight ahead guy. And um, Giles Peterson, we loved. And we thought if we do that, we'll end up just like doing like off tangential jazz that we'll live, but that we'll love. But I don't know. We want to do something with the parties. We There seemed to be this body of stuff that there was great and people were enjoying and I don't know. So um, there seemed to be this middle ground, and and probably Scott multiplied. They were they were commercial. They offered us more money, but we turned that down. So, and because XL, I mean, at the time they didn't have they'd had the prodigy who like had had a bit of life, but I, I don't know. It seemed it didn't seem like they were going anywhere particularly at that time, and needed some more stuff. Were there any lessons that you learned back then that have really stayed with you? Well, I mean, I think it's always the same thing. Believe in what you're doing. And if the world doesn't like it, carry on doing it. <laughs> when the doors are shut, carry on doing it. And uh, and hopefully if you do it with integrity and for love of what you're doing, then hopefully it'll get somewhere in the end. And um, and I, I do believe that anyway. And, um, and also striving for excellence. It's kind of... Um, at the time, definitely, we were very inspired by by productions, like by other producers. Yeah, I, I don't know, like um, from America, there was this kind of a load of producers. I mean, there was loads of people doing great stuff, you know, Italy, from Japan. It was inspiring. And the idea of making music and, and, and then playing it out and then hearing it on a radio and it's like, yeah, but stuff you're really into, that seemed great because it... I don't know, in a way it gives you power that 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 it might not be that whatever tacky, awful thing is popular this week. It's like people accept something else and with it with more truth in it and and that makes you feel better at the end of the day. So I, I don't know. I mean definitely the the thing of um not waiting to be famous or or kind of like wait for it to be handed to you. It's kind of um yeah, I, I think you've just got to, 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 well, for me, like putting on the nights as well, that was integral to the whole thing. And that that became a really true, really good vibe. And um, and when that started getting popular, like it became hit. It kind of like uh, the Face magazine kind of said about it. And all of a sudden we had all these hipsters all coming. And that was the moment I thought, okay, that's it. Because uh, the original true people, it's kind of not for them anymore. And it will never be what it was. So it's kind of, I don't know, just kind of rather than thinking I could milk it and make money, you could. It, it depends on what you want to do in life. If if I was a businessman, maybe you know, I'd have like built it up, made lots of money and then killed it later when it was going downhill or sold it or something. But I don't know, it it kind of served its purpose. I mean, every night I used to, I do remember those early nights, like coming back and just going, God, that was even better. That it was just like this this feeling of just like, wow, such a good night. 
But part of the reason it felt so good before the night, sometimes I'd be sick in the toilet because I was worried no one come. <laughs> and I used to be the, the first one on the on the dance floor, like at the George the Fourth. I put a record on and then I'll go and and then I'll go onto the dance floor and start dancing. Cause I knew that people when someone was dancing, they felt more relaxed. And there's yeah, you just want people to kind of there. So it, it was hard work and stressful. <laughs> But fun and and great payoff. Yeah, great payoff, right? How did you manage to get the likes of DJ Sneak, Armin Van Helden and Daft Punk to come and play at your parties? And what do you think it was about the events that made them so special? Uh, I mean, DJ Sneak had heard about us through this mix. He was working in a record shop, I think, in, I don't know, not Chicago, maybe Toronto or, or somewhere, I don't know. And he liked it, he was playing it, he was getting gigs, he was kind of... Yeah, he was part of the scene that was evolving. And because also some people did work in record shops as well, because that was a way to get paid and get the good records. And so it was like, it was quite hard to find all this culture. And we'd ended up being booked with a couple of gigs with Sneak. So we got to know him. And then it was Armin Van Helden, Roger Sanchez, and then Daft Punk. Basically, Junior Sanchez uh, created this thing called The Mongoloids. I thought he thought it was a great kind of like team force, which I mean, it's meaningless. It's like, let's all say we're in the, you know, the the party gang or whatever. It, it's just like, it's just a name. It's kind of like little kid stuff, really. We're, we're the kind of the superhero gang. Uh, but basically, I suppose all the people within that had this mindset of um, embracing difference and trying it and kind of an attitude of maybe a bit of a punk attitude because, um, we used to call, well, actually my mate Frank, again, I think he probably thought of punk garage. He said, because you play garage, but it's kind of distorted and you play it fast. or And um, so it's like you play it with a punk attitude. And um, so, uh, yeah, and probably Armin was was the same and, and Daft Punk as well. And uh, there was Ian Pooley in Germany. So we didn't really, I, I don't know. So Daft Punk, we had... I know that we ended up like playing before them when they did some gigs in London when they were kind of becoming hot. And I think that's the time we might have played Fly Life like to probably three people in in the back room afterwards or something. <laughs> that was at the end. That was all around the same time. So it didn't really matter where you were or whether it was a crowd or not. You you were kind of trying to present the best sound that and and be the most exciting in just the the coolest sound and making intros and and i don't making it like a journey the whole dj set that kind of is interesting and um yeah i and daft punk we met them doing those gigs and we asked someone to ask them if they come and play a gig in loughborough junction and they said yes there was hardly any space in this place so it's people used to knock the deck constantly and it'd go and everyone would go away. Um, Cause it was part of the thing. We were all there and it was a, I remember Daft Punk saying the stairs are pretty unsafe because, because some of them broke when they were trying to walk downstairs from upstairs. And uh, yeah, so, but they liked that too. And uh, I remember Thomas, I don't know. He played something like, uh, Christmas rap or Van Halen rap, like some 
like weird stuff that people are like, whoa, you know, it, and that was exciting. It was like you're you're playing with people's heads a bit and and they might notice, but then you do something cool and mix into this and I don't know. So it was very alive, the whole thing. I'd love to talk about your live shows. I remember seeing you in Brighton and also at Creamfields. And I was always, as a fan, I was always just blown away. I loved it. So I'm really interested to know what went into making your live shows happen. That was probably one thing signing to Excel. They said, yeah, you know, with an album, you should do a live show as well. Initially, we'd been, been trying to get a girl to front like the, the thing and get record companies interested in that. There was a girl, Karina Joseph, who'd been singing in my mate Fiona's office and she said she can sing. And she was basically the first Basement Jack's vocal song, uh, which was just trying it. And um, and she'd never sung on a record. A lot of it was like that. It was kind of just made up and you give it a go. And um, and then playing that on a boat party and like, oh, people are like, oh, what's that song? But it's all really small. And I, actually, probably one thing talking to you now that, that I'm very aware of, that constantly there'll be other names of people who did something who were part of it. There was my mate Alma, who was a friend of Fiona's as well. She was amazing. And uh, she used to like, she used to sort the money out at the parties. She used to DJ a bit at the beginning because at the, at the Mexican restaurant, I like the idea that, that there'll be a lot of female DJs. So I was trying to get females to DJ like Fiona and Alma, and they, they didn't really have the skills or any of it, but they could play music. It was just volume up, volume down. And, um, and they did. So it was kind of, it was just kind of making it all up and having fun at the same time. But also all these people are really important. It's not just, and definitely over the years with Basement Jacks, that was one thing that used to bother me that uh, I didn't like it. That it was like a picture of Simon and myself. Because I, I said this, there's so many people involved. I, I don't think it's it's a true reflection, but the press were never interested in the, the bigger picture. They just wanted, and they used to say, you're from Brixton, aren't you? The boy is from Brixton. Simon never lived in Brixton anyway. <laughs> it's, I, I did, but but I was from Leicester. So it was kind of like, and I didn't want, yeah. So as far as I was concerned, I'm from Leicester. And I always used to say that, but they didn't hear. They were like, yeah, boy's from Brixton and this underground thing. And they kind of shaped it in the way, I mean, to our advantage, you know, they got into it, but uh, maybe they were looking at something else rather than uh, what we were seeing. I was, I wanted it to be pure to the core, really, of, of kind of what it was. And and also all these things, are. It's it's about so many people, it's about collaboration, it's about kind of a story you hear might be the reason that you have something in a song or in a Fiona again, she came up with the Kish Cash title for that album. Uh, uh, Paul Acklaw, uh, he came up with the Remedy album because I was speaking to a friend who's like, well, Paul's really good at words. And um, so it got to a point, it was Universal Panacea, like some, and, and it was like Remedy. It was like, oh, yeah, that's great. So it was like, I, I don't know, people love to put a brand and just say it's it's every kind of part of you. And uh, and it's more fun with a lot of people. And that's the reason it's better as well. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, right? When you're able to bounce ideas off people, uh, ideas can grow and develop and blossom, which is really, really cool. 
And you also bring in lots of great vocalists onto your tracks. There's so many cool collaborations. I'm really interested to know how you got the best out of your collaboration sessions and what it was about you guys that people wanted to work with. Everyone probably I've ever met has uh, ended up doing one line or something, or could you just do a bit of this, just need a voice doing that. Well, probably at the beginning, it, it was, uh, yeah, thinking of Remedy, there's there's quite a few different voices. Slaughter John's on one track there. Um, that was from a track I got in, um, uh, I think it used to be called Uptown Records or somewhere. I remember actually just going in a, a kind of a, at the time you didn't have social media or anything. So the information you pick up in the record shop was quite important. And I remember when Red Alert came out that um, I can remember going into Uptown, I think, or, and there was Norman Jay there and they were listening to it, which is quite funny. And he's going, yeah, the thing is with this Basement Jack stuff, they never do proper intro beats. They try and make it all interesting, which is really bad for DJs, which is which is actually really helpful to hear. But also, I, uh, one thing I was trying to do was not make DJ intro boring DJ intros because I thought it's so uncreative and and I and I I was trying to do stuff without the sound of a snare. That really bothered me as well. It's because everyone did it. It was so boring and straightforward. But of course, you have this format that everyone knows. So it was trying to break out of the format. But it's interesting that you you kind of get these snippets of feedback, which is really useful as well. Um, so you know when you do your club mix, it's like, oh, yeah, he said it wasn't that useful. Maybe you should take that on board and try and do that. Um, but thinking of Slaughter John, he was, um, there was Busiest Party was a record. It was like a... I suppose now you call it UK Garage or bass music or something. Um, but that was all around then in, in like 97, 98. And um, so he was on this, on the B side of it, I think. And it, and he was so melodic with his rapping, with his chatting. It seemed really cool. So um, when we were signed to Excel, there seemed a way that we might be able to track this guy down. Someone could phone some number somewhere. And then... We, we ended up getting him down to London and then we did a session and that was really lively and exciting. And we were trying to make a, a track, you know, about positivity and about kind of, um, and just the idea of him singing going up, never heard that before and thought, Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. An all time classic, right? Jump and shout. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Slaughter John. And then the chorus, you got to jump and shout is, is, um, by his mate, um, Wiley, um, not Wiley from London, from Birmingham. So basically he was his mate who was egging him on and he was just like, I was like, well, that bit sounds really good. Maybe that could be like the chorus. So, uh, cause we didn't really have a chorus. We had all this going up stuff and that sounded good. And then we had two versions, one that we wanted to be a bit like Buster Rhymes. That ended up being the original uh, album version. And then the Booslinger dub that we played more in the underground parties. There's so many cool tracks on the album. There's obviously Red Alert. There's Bingo Bango, which I've got here with, with the Harry Romero remix on the on it as well. Thinking of Bingo Bango, I mean, and Red Alert too, is kind of like those records wouldn't exist if it wasn't for a sample. So it's kind of like Red Alert, that was in some charity shop, bought Unlock the Funk, this track. I wasn't like a connoisseur of underground soul, Brit soul movement. 
But I thought it sounded good, and I, I didn't like the vocals so much, but I, I, I thought that bit sounds good. Yeah, Simon was saying a couple of years ago, he said, yeah, I, I never really liked that that much right at the beginning. <laughs> so I don't know where, what he thinks now because it becomes so ingrained. It becomes like part of the world. But it's funny how it's not like, oh, it sounded so, you know, perfect in every way. I mean, you get used to things when you hear them. That started, we, we started playing it and we had some Buster Rhymes vocal over there. We used to play that because we thought it sounded cool. And so we had a bit of an instrumental and the song came a bit later. And that sometimes happens. Bingo Bango, that was like a, from another like record shop, like a fifth track on an album on the other side. It's like, oh, that bit sounds good. And then the Bingo Bango, that's Cassie who worked in, she was working in the car rental place in Oval. <laughs> so um, so I went there and uh, to, to rent a, a car um put down music producer I was hardly a music producer at the time but uh that's kind of what I was I would like to call myself she said oh music producer I sing and she was there in her outfit you know car rental outfit and uh, I said okay if you sing sing then so she stood up at the desk in this little unit and went ah and, and sang her head off and the balls and kind of enthusiasm and life she had and she's a real positive spirit and a, a great person so she ended up doing the bing bing bingo bango and then the video we went uh, Simon bought a video camera and we go when I met her at lunchtime went to the wall behind the office and and filmed her going bingo bango <laughs> so it's <was> really homemade <laughs> it, meeting people anywhere all the time you know like that girl in Fiona's office ended up doing a track uh, actually, the, the guy in his office who would, used to come to the club nights, he ended up being on the deep jacking track. His mate, he's Sean, who worked in the warehouse, but who got because it's jacking <laughs> and it sounded all right. And because, um, yeah, it's like someone had to do it. <laughs> and uh, and he always, and well, probably over the history of Basement Jacks, any new person I'd meet, like, for example, when the, uh, there were riots in Brixton and, and the tube wasn't going back there. So I ended up chatting up this girl, Brazilian girl in Stockwell. And we walked back to Brixton. So she ended up being, um, uh, which song was that now? Uh, well, that was So Lonely. Uh, yeah, which was, that was about her because basically she was going back to Brazil in a week. But through her, I met all the Brazilians who became part of the first live show and the samba dances and and that when we did Glastonbury, they all ended up coming and being part of the encore. So it's kind of nothing works in straight lines, but it's just these chance meetings. And yeah, so I mean, serendipity, the universe, whatever you call it, don't say, oh, isn't that odd? Just say, oh, that's great. Maybe that's something interesting. Maybe that's an opportunity. Who knows? It's kind of like, yeah, they're the best things in life. Definitely. It's kind of, um, happy accidents and there's some accidents aren't so happy or as good but you know you don't keep on walking in that direction so once you released remedy things kind of popped off for you basically and i imagine you got super super busy although you were able to stay pretty consistent with your releases which is very very impressive what are some of the exciting moments and times that you remember from back then the whole thing went very much as a curve we got you know, from me getting made redundant, like spending more time doing stuff 
doing more parties because it was possible. Simon and I working really intensely to try and make the album good and like pushing in, just trying, thinking this is a chance that, you know, and um, and I don't know. I mean, it was a dream come true as well. The idea that like, what do you want for the artwork? And and I said, you know, I'd love to have a, a landscape of naked bodies. Um, so looking like they're all intertweaved, like they were the earth sort of thing. And um, and and that happened, you know, and it's kind of like ranking the photographer ended up shooting it. But I, and that was an experience like going there and meeting him. And then he said, the bodies are in there. Do you just want to arrange them? <laughs> Which is like and thinking a link to the Brazilians. It was George there who became our percussionist. I'd met him through the Brazilian crew, crew and I said, yeah, George, go. You can get a bit of cash in hand. <laughs> so he was lying there naked with like six or like 10 others or something. And I was in there red-faced, like moving legs and arms around. I thought Rankin's meant to be the top photographer. I thought he was he was doing it, but he was like, I just take pictures, you know. It's like, But all this stuff is great fun and just like, you know, it's – you're out of your comfort zone, but loving it. And it's kind of, um, I, I suppose, yeah, what you said about being busy, it, it just became busier and busier. And then you're asked to do this and asked to do that. And could you do a mix for an essential mix and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, that'd be great to do. And there are lots of things you want to do. And probably, you know, the record company might have said, you know, like the second album, I, I can't really remember any of that. I mean, we were both enjoying it. It seemed to be working. We wanted to do new tunes to play as part of the whole thing rolling forward. So, um, yeah, so probably like Remedy, Rooty and Kishkash, they were all part of this this ball rolling forward. And Glastonbury, yeah, I don't know where that was. Maybe that, that was probably after Kishkash, around the same time. So that seemed to be we'd reached the top and we had this great opportunity and um, that felt like a summation of all these years. But there'd never been a moment to kind of, until then, I think, for me, to actually go, oh, wow, look where we are. Because also, like the, the Glastonbury before, a friend, Simon Bissett, he came to do some filming. And he said, oh, I, just, I just couldn't film you guys backstage because you look so worried. And <laughs> just like that was doing Glastonbury because it was like scary. And we were doing like, uh, that was the other stage or yeah and it was kind of like it was a big deal at the time and uh we didn't have much of a live show it was just us DJing and we'd like DD would come on and do a bit of flamenco and then a Brazilian dance and George would do a bit of percussion Slaughter John would come and MC and do jump and shout so there were these little bits that happened I'm interested in how your sound evolved after that did you ever think about making music for that bigger stage we never really thought about it at all. I mean, definitely we made some extra tracks like, um, for example, there was a track called Yo-Yo Big Clubs, which was basically we took the track Yo-Yo and did like one of these big versions, kind of festival versions, because that would be good with the live show to make one of those bits happen. So we'd make extra bits to kind of, um, uh, there was one we had Motorhead Ace of Spades, which is like a rock track. That, that we kind of sampled and kind of did that. And I don't know, just to bring some other colors and different stuff. But also it's probably each year, like it's funny how things change and trends and, 
you know, there was filter house and then people didn't like uh, speed UK garage anymore. So like by the time we got to Kishkash, we would, it was a lot more rocky probably because we were playing next to the Arctic monkeys and muse in festivals. So like we do something that worked for that audience. So it was automatically less club. Um, it was for that environment. So, and as, and probably a song like good luck that happened because, well, we don't need to have dance beats. We can do it a different tempo and it doesn't matter as long as it kicks off in some way. Um, so it probably allowed us chance to kind of widen the, the canvas a bit. And so artistically, we could keep growing and trying different things, I guess. So in terms of growing artistically, how did you guys approach making albums like as a body of work? Thinking right from the first EP, I was very conscious. Like, I, I don't know, it just seemed to make sense. Well, also the way to be artistically free and to have more fun there had to be one track that was a banger that people would play. So um, that was the idea in my mind. The fourth track, that could be as random and off anywhere. It doesn't matter. You can get away with it because if there's, there's got to be one that definitely works and then two good ones. <laughs> so, that, so that was it. But it meant that, that basically there's a safety thing to make sure you shifted some units. That might not be the track that people go for. I mean, the fact is, yeah, the first EP underground that the track Tony Humphreys played was the deep one, which, which is like amazing. Which uh, I hadn't have. Yeah, that that wasn't as planned. That was like a deep jazzy one. Yeah, that's great to do, but there has to be the banger and and the artistic one as well. You know, to bring those and and all the way along, we always did that. There might be a fourth track that's give us a chance to try other things because we like other music too. So it's kind of like. I suppose in a way artistically that that was drawn out at the beginning. So we carried on doing that. So every, every 12 inch we put out, that's like a mini album, which is why Norman Jay complained that, you know, it kind of like the beats weren't so good for mixing because it was trying to be a good listening experience and hopefully be good enough. I mean, you know, neither of us were like amazing, like scratch DJs or anything. And also at the time people like masters at work, they were being experimental with intros and it was like, wow, they did it. Yeah. And we play that track. Why not? It's kind of like, it seemed exciting to kind of push the boundaries. Did you ever get any advice or words of wisdom that helped you on your musical journey? Uh, one thing I always remember, just thinking of Daft Punk, when they, I think they were doing um, Brixton Academy and I was talking to Thomas Bangolte's father backstage because his father was um, like a, he did a, a 70s disco record. So he knew a bit about the business. He was a really nice guy. He was really cool. I guess then maybe we'd just done, maybe we'd finish Remedy or I don't know what stage we were at. Maybe I said something like, oh, there's a new sound and this is happening now. I, I, I don't know about that. And um, he said, you know, don't worry. It's because people always run to kind of, catch the new thing and by the time they get there they're out of breath and it's moved somewhere else you know the hip thing and I always remember that and that was always one thing Daft Punk were very good at which he said at the time he said it's really good to make something make it really good and just kind of stand over there and do it 
and let people come to you rather than like follow what everyone else is doing. So they're probably the only real words of wisdom about the creative kind of journey, but that definitely kind of rang true. And definitely I think with them, they were a lot more about concept. Yeah. I think they looked at, they kind of positioned everything and um, which was, which was great. And it was really to their success and, I, I think they enjoyed enjoyed looking at it like that. I mean, it's kind of um, well, Thomas particularly, he was kind of like, you know, full of ideas constantly. Yeah, but less so for us. I think we were alongside people like them, so it was kind of what they did. Obviously, we thought, oh, they're doing that, so maybe we could do this, or you know, people like Roger Sanchez, Daft Punk. There, there were people doing stuff that would inspire you to do take that step in that direction or something that happens, or as you see more of the world and have more different situations, you kind of, your palette, artistic palette for, I don't know, it kind of changes and you react to that, I suppose. And looking back now, what do you think it is about you guys that made Basement Jack so successful? Probably what we were doing, that was below the surface and and it came into the mainstream and us. Daft Punk ourselves and Armin van Helden probably all at the same time we started to kind of ascend because people started liking that kind of music so in a way that that's time and place and and but also that's being true to your heart because when I met Simon first of all wanting to do this thing it wasn't in the headline saying this is going to be the next big thing it was like this is really cool and um, I suppose that's luck that it it kind of went into the mainstream. All these things, it's to do with energy. It's kind of like, I don't know. Also, we were being really authentic about what we did. We really loved it and we were trying to do it the best we could. And we weren't trying to be successful. I don't think that successful, well, successful meant creating something that was really cool, <laughs> which uh, I suppose, which... Yeah, I don't know what shape that is. It's just uh, something that ignites you and makes you feel really alive and is really important and vital somehow, which is uh, not necessarily about selling units or the ideas probably now of uh, like followers. I, I don't know. Do you have any techniques to keep your creative juices flowing? Uh, well, probably uh, thinking of the music industry or whatever, I mean, both Simon and myself, we've probably never been in the industry. We've not hung out with all the industry people at industry events, talking about the industry and music, whatever. I don't, I don't know. It's good not to have too much of that. Probably, yeah, I think probably with both of us, our friends are different people doing different things. It gives you a balance and um, home and family and like real stuff. Like, I don't know, going to volunteer in a homeless shelter, anything like that is good it's good for the soul it kind of is good for your perspective and and it just kind of helps you put things in line a bit I've always valued um yeah just kind of a bit of space and time to think I can probably remember years ago if when things were getting quite busy a singer would be coming to the studio and I'd have to just go to the toilet and I, I just sit there and just uh just kind of try and clear my mind and um also, it might be they're coming to do a song that's not written yet. And uh, so it, 
I mean, my dad, with being a vicar, he, he used to say, like, when you're tired, go to bed. Uh, sometimes he'd have a, a sermon, like a, a speech to make every week, and he wants to say something meaningful to people. So he'd just go and lie down, you know, even if it's for 10 minutes, and then get up and then write it, you know. It's kind of like, it's just trying to reset, which is with singers in the studio, that's like getting them to make animal noises. They'd forget about being a cool singer. They're like, what's this all about? It's shaking up the energy or moving the energy. So it's kind of going for a walk around the block is good as well. Or like kind of, um, yeah, just shifting your mindset. So it's kind of, um, which your mindset can get stuck if you sit in a chair looking at the same objects or, um, yeah, and any way to shift that is good. And, um, yeah, I mean, definitely having a child, that definitely shifts the mindset. And it's probably a good thing. All you've got to work with is the energy level as well. Also, the other thing, probably thinking of, I was always very conscious in the studio when I'd, whenever I'd go and see Simon, because we had limited time often, because I was working and, and stuff at the beginning, or even later, but actually keeping your energy and eating and doing stuff like that is really important. It's kind of, yeah, you've got, if you've got something to give, if you want to make music with energy, then you you want to have some energy in life, which is probably, yeah, being in the flow as much as you can and kind of trying to enjoy life, you know, give the world what you want to receive back. So we're just about coming to the end of the interview. Thank you so much for all the time you spent with us. I've really, really enjoyed it. Can you give us your top three tips for aspiring musicians, producers and artists on their musical journey? The main thing is, is kind of just doing something that you enjoy. I mean, nowadays it might be more of a mix of like holographic filming with sound that you can smell <laughs> and like do some kind of weird body forming shapes too. I mean, you use whatever tools are around. Um, I mean, that's how house music, drum and bass, all these things started. It was by using the equipment wrong. And definitely there'll be some interesting stuff. I, I think it's a little bit, it's, it's kind of getting tools from the world, but it's like really trying to think, you know, what floats my boat or what seems really great and thrills me, which might not be what people are doing. That, but that's how good things are formed, which is it slightly feels to do something good today, you almost need to go and live in a, an island cut off from everything and like start playing the penny whistle or something. And, uh, I don't know. And then get some technology and see what you do, like with your natural humanness. So definitely number one, don't worry what anyone else is doing. Number two, follow your heart. And if you don't know what your heart is saying, then maybe try and listen a bit. And um and just be quiet and stop looking at things or listening to things, and uh, what rings true. Uh, from that point of view, definitely for me that, I mean I I think like our highest self, our our most divine experience on earth comes when we're we're free, we're in the flow. You know the surfer who's there on the wave, they're not thinking, they're just they're in that moment. And uh, it's just trying to find that moment, however you can find it, which might be playing an instrument, might be singing, might be fiddling around with with some buttons or 
I don't know, it might be creating things out of egg boxes and then thinking, I'm just going to play those and see how that sounds and then play it backwards and then, I don't know, just record a, a goat. <laughs> I, I don't know. That's one technique I used to use with singers to try and get rid of all this noise and stuff. I used to, which some people found a bit difficult. Some loved it. Uh, but I used to say, can you make like a noise of a cow and a sheep? Because some people, if they thought I'm a cool singer, they'd kind of, yeah, that that it would really help. And the other thing, actually, which uh, I find more interesting now, I always used to get people to jump up and down on the spot as well. And more I've learned about, I don't know, looking into sound healing and energetics and stuff. Basically, you're shifting the body chemistry and the body energy. So I think being very serious about energy when you're creating music is a good thing. So that's your precious gold and um, respect it, you know, like you and and respect all the people you work with. It's like whatever we're doing, like kindness is kind of great. Treat people as you'd want to be treated yourself. Whatever you've done in your life, it doesn't matter. It all falls away by the time you get old and gray. Yeah, just live and put that life into the music. Keep on going because that's the main thing. It's very easy to give up. I remember there was a, a guy, a friend, he used to give me cassettes of like all these grooves and stuff he'd done. They were great, uh, but he never finished them. And he was like, oh, I'm not sure about this. And it takes a bit of discipline sometimes to finish things, even if you put it in the bin, that's fine. Or also with him, the fact he, he saw me and I I helped him finish a couple of the tunes and then he put something out and then it happened, you know, even in whichever way. Um, and if you're finding it hard to finish it, then maybe, yeah, do play it to someone else, get a bit of input. I mean, definitely thinking my mate Fiona, who's cropped up a lot. Like I remember the first time with good luck taking that home and playing it to her. Like, oh, what do you think about this one? And that was a really great reaction because I'd played her other tunes and, and she kind of walked off and gone and watched EastEnders. And then you have an idea, maybe that one's not it's not cutting it. And don't worry. It's kind of, I think we're at a time of anxiety and worry and like, am I doing the right thing? A lot of the best art and the most interesting things, they're just, a, they're just doing stuff. And it might seem completely normal or it might con- all completely abnormal. But in the end, it will become something else if you keep working on it. There's inspiration and then there's craft. I think it's kind of, um, was it Picasso said, you know, um, inspiration comes to you when you're working. So if you just keep working, then yeah, you'll get the inspiration, but it might not be at that hour or that hour. And always record ideas in your phone. That's what I do. I probably did that this morning, about half two in the morning. I put my head under the covers because the baby and my wife are next to me sang just a bit of melody that was in my head because I thought that way I can go to sleep and I'll remember the melody. So I haven't listened to that. I've got thousands. <laughs> yeah, but but that was a very true, it, it was in my head. It was, I don't know whether it's good or bad, doesn't matter. Decide that later. Decide that later, love it. Are you and Simon working on any new music? We did like a couple of tracks uh, towards the end of last year. Um, express yourself a track well basically the last two years i went into dadland uh had a baby daughter and um 
probably because I put that off for for years and years. One of the things I did, I said to my girlfriend, I'm going to put the music right there in the centre of my world for the next couple of years. And at the time, I think she'd said, you know, it will be good to have a family now to settle down. And I said, it's 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 not the time uh, for me. And uh, which is hard to do because it's like, and you know, some things might not carry on, uh, but it seemed like we'd been given an opportunity and, um, and it takes loads of work and a lot of thinking. And yeah, so definitely the last couple of years, particularly, you know, I, I gave my energy to being a dad. Um, Simon's just recorded uh, something village of the sun he did in the last year uh, with Binker and Moses, the jazz guys. And so he's just done that. And uh, talking about making plans, I have made a vague plan this year, and that is to do some more Basement Jacks material. Um, in Australia, there were a couple of ideas that we started playing in, in the earliest forms. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm hoping so. Simon's definitely not not jumping up and down about it at the moment, but... I, I think I think there will be some this year, but also personally, I've got a musical that I've been trying to get going, and um, the first lockdown, I managed to actually get my script done at last. So my my two missions this year, main mission is to get the musical move forward, and I've recorded stuff with the orchestral Sydney Metropolitan Orchestra from the Sydney Opera House who we did a Basement Jacks thing with a, a few years ago. And uh, so I've got the ball rolling on that. But that's kind of like uh, quite off, like not weird jazz. It's it's definitely kind of very melodic. I was a, a, a fan of Mozart when I was young. And um, so I'm going more in that direction of like really delightful, enlightened music. So we'll see whether anyone cares about that or not. But at least I want to get that finished this year. And the other prong is just getting the basement jacks thing moving forward. In a way, it's always these things. If there's you've got something, then you want to do it well. So that's the uh, that kind of gets you working a bit more. So and it, and it, it seems now, you know, my daughter's too. All of a sudden, okay, yeah, we're kind of back in the game a bit. I think, but it was definitely a bit of a, a shock for anyone who has a new one, particularly if you're an older father. So that's the real benefit if you're a younger father. It's kind of not as hard. Felix, thanks once again for joining us here on the Open Door Talks podcast. I've really, really enjoyed your stories today. It's been really, really inspiring. I've loved every minute. Thanks again and hopefully see you soon. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And uh, I really look forward to what people out there are going to create and uh, to hear their wonderful creations. Babies just started crying in the background. Uh, yeah, she's definitely been sampled a few times already. But I think turning to, she's just about ready to be able to give me some little snippets. Uh, but enjoy yourselves and don't worry too much. Life is a gift. You know, my father passed away last year. He's been a big influence in my life. And and then you realise all the kind of um, the trophies and things that you can gain throughout life. A lot of people get older and they fall away. And all that really matters, the, the kind of the warm truthful connections you have with other people and with music and with anything around you in the world so that's that's the gold dust and um yeah don't worry what kind of people tell you is your gold dust you know it's whatever 
feels right to you as well. And I wish you the best of luck, all of you. It's like, remember that we've got the, the forces there. You just got to like bring it into your body and like fire it out to the world and, and have fun and think that we're actually at this point where this is a new a new age. It's really coming right now. So it's kind of, it's a brilliant time to be in your position of creating something. And I'm so excited to see and hear what you do. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Open Door Talks today. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the love and share it with a friend. We've also got a Spotify playlist featuring the music from the podcast. So make sure you check that out and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources.